Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski talk about conversations in Park City, a new De Beers CEO, and a new spin on a classic Patek Philippe watch. Hey everyone, welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com. I'm calling in from Los Angeles and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I've been up since we usually record this at 3 p.m. Eastern, so it's noon for me, but I have been at my desk since the bright old hour of 6 a.m. Actually, it wasn't bright at all. It was quite dark because the only time slot I could land on Jean-Christophe Babin's schedule. Now he's the CEO of Bulgari, oversees Bulgari worldwide, their jewelry watch business, and of course their hospitality business. And he was in the Maldives, which sounds like a lovely place to go on business. They are opening a slew of new properties, including a Miami location, a LA location, Tokyo, Maldives. And I guess he was sussing out the property. And he gave me like a good hour of his time to talk about the expansion of Bulgari jewelry business and the prospects for branded jewelry in general over the coming years. It was really interesting. I mean, Cartier is doing the same in Italy. And so there are a lot of pressures being put on the jewelry industry there in Italy to turn out a bunch of workers who are capable of creating precious jewelry. So I guess uh, great things for Italy and their workforce. And uh, I guess a lot of competitive spirit there between the different brands fighting for all that talent in Italy. So more on that to come, but it was a really interesting conversation. Also a little tired. I'm sitting here having essentially coffee just constantly dripping into my veins. <laughs> um, uh, first of all, I'm very tired too, uh, but that's <laughs> Is there- my own fault because I stay up late. But um, did he talk about the Bulgari hotels? Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's the exactly. thing they're doing. Yeah. And uh, I've never stayed at one, but apparently he mentioned that in Paris, you know, it's a pretty new entrant. I'm not sure when the Paris property opened, but it's in terms of average nightly rates that they're capturing, it's like 2,500 euros. A a night, a night, right? A night, 2,500 euros a night. And here's the thing, and he pointed this out, which I think if you start thinking about it, it becomes clear. It's like, it's not a corporate business traveler. These are rich people on holiday, or maybe they're entrepreneurs, but even Mr. Bebe, Ben pointed out even he couldn't stay at that property. Obviously, Bulgari doesn't okay $2,500 a night for its business trips. So, I mean, it's just remarkable how much that business has come roaring back. What, what do you get for that 2,500 euros? I would think you get maybe free jewelry because that's a, that's a lot of money. You know, I don't think you get free jewelry uh, because right. honestly, probably one of their opening price points is in the 1000 to 2500 range, right? So they're not going to give you a jewel that costs as much as the hotel room. But what they will do, I'm sure, is try to encourage those customers to then look at their high jewelry. I mean, I think the customers that are paying 2,500 euros a night are very much their key targets for the high jewelry and their high-end watches. So does seem like a winning strategy. You kind of woo them in the hospitality space, woo them at the hotel, show them a nice time, make sure that they feel good about it. And then they're naturally inclined to think about you when they're looking for an anniversary gift or a nice, you know, self-reward. You know, other brands I've stayed in an Armani property. So another, you know, there are these cross examples of brands jumping from fashion to hospitality, but I can't think of any other jewelers. I think Shinola had a hotel. I don't know if they still do. They sure do. And it's in Detroit apparently it's also doing very well. And I think there may be more coming. Um, I ran into their head of communications 
Trish and she is a, a good friend and anyway, did seem to suggest that the Shinola property was also doing very well. So there is something about these cross-sector projects that appeals to people. And, and obviously you capture an audience in one and you can then target them in your other business. So maybe they come for the hotel and they enjoy the restaurant, but then you sell them a watch and vice versa. Speaking of trips and <laughs> yes. being high as far as altitude, um, <laughs> you were just at Park City for the Jewelers. What was exactly what it was called? It was sponsored by Jewelers Mutual. And it was called Conversations in Park City. It was billed as a leadership forum. It was put together, really the brainchild of our, my dear friend, our ex-publisher, our collective friend, Mark Smelzer, who is now head content for Jewelers Mutual Group. And for a long time, he had this vision of pulling together you know, the creme de la creme of our industry, all these big thinkers and across different facets of the trade, bringing them all to a leadership retreat. And he grew up in Ogden, Utah, Mark did. And so he was very familiar with some of the properties around Salt Lake City. And they selected the St. Regis in Deer Valley, which is just on the outskirts of Park City. And most people arrived on Friday and left on Sunday, although some people also arrived on Thursday and left on Monday. And you could bring your loved ones if you wanted. And a few people did bring their significant others, their partners, their kids. I, in fact, was one of them. My boyfriend, Jim, came along with our son, Nico, and they had a blast. The weather was incredible. So I'm just setting the stage here because obviously the main point of this whole conference was the content. And Mark pulled in one of the leading thinkers on retail strategy and futurism as it pertains to retail, PSFK, which is a company based in New York that I've tapped quite a bit for research, for their insights into retail innovation retail strategy. They, they were on our podcast. They've been on our podcast. Exactly. So Scott Latchett, who was on our podcast, is no longer with PSFK, but they have Jeff Weiner, and he pulled in experts that he's used for his particular presentations. There was a woman from Estee Lauder, another strategist who has done deep content marketing for big brands and presented just a lot of really interesting content about a lot of it was about the omni-channel experience. I hate the word fidgetal, but of course it does apply. It's this combination of physical and digital retail and what retailers need to be prepared for. So a lot of it was sort of things that are happening now and how retailers need to be on board with some of these shifts in the consumer buying experience. And a lot of the content was also future focused, talking about NFTs and the metaverse. And, you know, I tune out a bit when I hear NFTs. I don't know about you, Rob, but I still oh, feel like, yeah, yeah, it's like we've just gotten too much information too quickly. It all feels a bit gimmicky. And so it was interesting to hear a much more thoughtful, not quite academic breakdown of what they are and what they mean for retailers. It made it seem more um, palatable, I guess you would say. And so it was a combination of future topics, present topics, a lot of great socializing opportunities, a beautiful setting. You know, no one's going to complain about coming to Park City for a weekend in October. I mean, it was stunning. The leaves were changing. It was brief, but it felt meaningful. Susan Jock was there from GIA. Uh, Michelle Orman, dear friend, led a great conversation around storytelling, digital storytelling. Brandy Dallow was there talking about sustainability on a panel led by Iris Vanderwecken, who was formerly of the Responsible Jewelry Council, now heads the Watch and Jewelry Initiative 2030, which is a spearheaded by Cartier and Caring. And again, she led a great panel on sustainability. So it was wonderful, actually. In fact, I'd been in touch with Iris before the weekend, and I was trying to get a, an interview with her set up. And she said, oh, well, I'm going to be in Utah this weekend. And I said, hey, so am I. So it was kind of nice. You know, you did feel like there were people who were movers and shakers in the business all descending on this sweet, very established resort 
town in the mountains of Utah. And it was nice. I must say, uh, bravo to Mark. I think he feels pretty good about the experience. I mean, I'm sure there's things that could evolve or could change or expand or whatever iteration they decide to do next. I hope there is a next one because even though this doesn't replace what AGS does with its conclave or certainly what JCK does with the Vegas show, it felt like, you know, a little bit different than that because it was a little more future focused, a little more, you know, leadership retreaty. I mean, it didn't feel like a trade show. There was no commercial aspect to it other than, you know, Jewelers Mutual obviously organized it. And I think just the fact that they were kind of the benefactors for all of us coming together was a bit of a commercial for them, but it wasn't in any way an aggressive sell on anything. So that was what felt nice about it is there was no nothing to buy, no commercials to sort of sit through. Well, so you just reported on an interesting story, which I did not see coming. Maybe you did. And it was about the leadership at De Beers. Uh, So I'll be honest, I did not see uh, this coming. But Bruce Cleaver, who's been the CEO for about the last uh, six years, is uh, stepping down and he's handing over the reins to Al Cook who's an industry outsider who I think he works for a energy company that does wind and solar. And no, I didn't see it coming. I think Bruce, who has also been on this podcast, is uh, very well respected. And I think he has a good reputation in the trade. You know, his predecessor, Philippe Millier, was an outsider too. Bruce was not an outsider, but Philippe Millier was. And while Millier delivered very good results, as far as the bottom line of the beers, he also injured, it's safe to say, the company's relationships with its clients, with site holders who felt that he pushed prices to a level that was not sustainable uh, for them. Mm -hmm. And I think Bruce did a good job of repairing relationships with the trade and with the site holders. And you really don't hear that many complaints about De Beers recently, uh, which is honestly, there was times uh, doing this job where every week, you know, I would hear a different complaint about De Beers or people mad about something. And certainly some of the recent CEOs you heard a lot of issues with and problems with. I mean, it hasn't all been smooth sailing, clearly, but I think most people think that Bruce has done a good job and it was a good steady uh, hand at De Beers and he's going to serve as the company's co-chairman. So he'll definitely be involved. He said he wants his co-chairmanship to be more than just part-time. So he wants to be involved. I think it is something of a loss uh, for De Beers that, that Bruce is leaving because I think he was a good spokesperson for the industry. I think he had a very good, smart, analytical mind. You know, you know I've spoken to people who work for him who had very nice things to say about him. So uh, we'll just have to see. I mean, it's not 100% clear why he's leaving. I know his name was mentioned as the CEO of Anglo-American, which is De Beers' parent company, and he did not get that. Um, he wanted only wanted to do it for five years, which is about the time... Uh, uh, his two predecessors spending a job and he finally, you know, it's it's a huge job. It's with a lot of travel. And one of the things his predecessor said is this is not a job where you're ever bored because there's always some crisis and something that you have to think about. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a pretty it's one of those jobs you can't even imagine. I mean, I guess what's interesting is a how they found him, why they chose him. I mean, a little interesting, too, that he's another white European man. Do you think that they ever considered anybody from any of their stakeholder countries, a Botswana, South African, anybody that might be from a different background, might be black? I mean, is that was do you think that was ever part of their consideration or... I don't know. I, you know, I'm, I, I don't know. I mean, they usually don't tell you. Um, 
I remember when Gareth Penny was chosen, and this is 2006, I believe, uh, there was a little bit of so, some uh, people in Africa were a little upset. They said, why are you choosing another uh, white man? And, you know, obviously, I personally have nothing against white men since some of my best friends are, are white men, including myself. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, I have heard from certain people who point out that De Beers is an African company. Its product caters mostly to women and all its CEOs have been white men. And I'm sure the I'm sure the new gentleman is extremely qualified, extremely bright. And as I said, it's not an easy position to find people from. But, you know, it's, it's some point you would hope that they would mix it up a bit. Yeah. I mean, I have no doubt. And I'm sure that if we put this question to Bruce and or Al directly, they would have an answer. I mean, I'm sure they've thought about some of these comments and some of these concerns. I do wonder what a training looks like for a CEO about to jump into this very esoteric world. I mean, where do you even begin? I would imagine he's tailing Bruce on various trips and various conversations. I don't know how else you'd try to put your arms around this business. It's taken me 22 years and I barely have started figuring out which questions to ask. So it does seem like an incredible amount to, to learn. But then again, you know, you come you come to the CEO position, you're used to leading big teams. And certainly he's got sustainability chops, which is a big deal. And I do wonder what this era might look like under Al Cook. You know, it does seem like these years under various CEOs have had their own particular brand of concerns and focuses and what the era that we are about to embark on with De Beers might mean. I mean, I suppose so much of it will be also taking its cues from the world around us and what it means to be a luxury goods provider in the 2020s. You know, I think that's a that's a really good point. I think one of the things that people did comment on is that this gentleman did not have any kind of experience as far as marketing and branding, which is something that De Beers is very much involved in. Again, it's hard to have people with the full range of skills needed, you know, marketing, branding, mining, government relations, all these things. I mean, that's a huge list of things on your plate. So he doesn't have that. But when I look at challenges that await the beers, they are a lot of them marketing challenges, making sure the product is relevant and interesting to a new generation, because that's really, you know, the consumer is what it's all about. So that's something that's very, very important. And, you know, obviously, lab grown is is still a big issue in the industry. And, uh, you know, when we look back on Bruce Cleaver's tenure, he was generally a very cautious person. But one of the things he did that was very surprising was to introduce Lightbox, Mm -hmm. um, which is arguably turbocharged the current vogue for lab-grown diamonds. So it's not clear if that may have perhaps not played out in the way De Beers wanted. It was it was a huge deal at the time. And uh, it's, it's also interesting to note that Bruce is leaving without signing a contract with Botswana. It's supposed to happen at some point. Apparently, they there's kind of a rough agreement sketched out, but it's not been signed yet. You know, it, it's certainly interesting that whatever happens with De Beers and producer countries, it does have now this uh, very interesting lab-grown business that it can kind of use perhaps as, uh, I I don't want to say leverage, but, you know, it's something that kind of diversifies its portfolio. And and remember, you know, when De Beers started Lightbox, you know, it was one of the few companies who could mass produce lab-grown diamonds. Now you see tons of companies that can do it. But at the time, it was a a relatively uh, unique skill. Oh, yeah. Well, years ago, and I'm sure I mentioned this to you, I was in Israel many, many years ago, maybe 15 years ago, and Haim Evan Zohar, who 
it wasn't particularly close to, but I was in Israel, I met him, and he sort of whispered to me that he knew what the grand plan was, and it was De Beers was going to be going into lab grown. That was its ultimate mission. And now here we are, and I think, well, shoot, maybe he had uh, had a quite an idea there. I'm not sure. Yeah, and I, I, I certainly, uh, back in uh, years ago, when lab grown was kind of this threat that kind of looked very uh, distant, I had De Beers executives say to me, if lab grown comes on the market, we will just go into it and do it cheaper and better than everybody else. You know, we know how to market diamonds and we could do it better and uh, cheaper. And that was kind of their emergency plan. And perhaps that's what Lightbox was, this emergency plan plan that was kind of there in case of uh, fire break glass. Mm. And so I, I think there's still a lot of debate about whether they should have done it or whether it necessarily made sense or whether it was perhaps too early or it didn't come across. I mean, you, you talked a little bit about authenticity. It didn't come across as authentic in that it came across as like they're just doing this to drive down the price rather than to make an actual brand. But, um, you know, I, I think it, it's, it was a really interesting move. And it's something companies, when challenged by disruptive models, react in different ways. And this was how De Beers reacted. And it was an interesting reaction. And it was probably kind of the, a non-typical reaction. And we'll just have to see, you know, how that plays out. I mean, clearly the price of lab-grown diamonds has fallen, which was purportedly one of the goals of, of Lightbox. But I don't think anybody knows 100% how the whole thing is going to play out long term. It's been four years, right? 2018 was when Lightbox... Yeah, 2018, yes. I suppose I... I figured we'd kind of know by now whether it was a good decision or a bad one, but it's still such a complicated market with so many opposing views. It's it's wild how many people still don't accept lab-grown as a um, product, you know, as a viable category. It's it's here. Swarovski is doing uh, lab-grown uh, now, rolling it out. So it's definitely going to be part of our industry going forward. I mean, I... I should say also, and this is an announcement that's under embargo until tomorrow, but by the time this podcast comes out, it will be news, but Breitling is announcing that it's using lab-grown diamonds and it's fully traceable. They're using a supplier that I'd never heard of, Phoenix, F-E-N-I-X. Uh, yeah, I, I know. I know. Yes, you're right. aware of them. Um, they're Indeed, also yes. using fully traceable gold that comes from a specific mine in Colombia, I believe, and um, working with the Swiss Better Gold Association, all really in this spirit of transparency and traceability that... And is that for all their diamonds or just for a specific model? Currently, it's they're introducing a new model called the Super Chronomat Origin piece, and it's featuring lab go diamonds but i think within uh by 2025 they intend to use them across all their collections i mean they're not a huge diamond brand they're not you know chopard or van cleef or cartier for that matter but they do have some ladies pieces with diamonds and it's also the gold that they're using and it's a big push for sustainability and transparency and it's certainly more transparent than i've ever known a swiss watch company to be and the lab grown thing you know we saw tag hoyer introduce a really spectacular piece back in geneva in april but it was much more focused on the possibilities of lab grown technology and what you could do it wasn't a comment about traceability at all it was about how creative you could be in the way you cut diamonds and so that's an interesting departure 
picture for Breitling because it's really their piece is not at all about interesting facets or different cuts. It's really about these diamonds have been sourced from these companies, which are, by the way, complying with SCS standards. We've asked all our suppliers to sort of do these certifications that we ourselves are doing. I mean, it's a really robust program. I was really impressed when I spoke to their sustainability chief, Aurelia Figueroa. And um, I mean, lab grown, part of the conversation, no doubt about it. So speaking of watches, it was a very uh, compelling piece in the New York Times the other day by this new writer, Victoria Gamelsky, Patek Philippe's Nautilus turns to white gold. And you said this new watch that Patek Philippe is introducing might just break the horological internet. You know, I thought it would, and I'm actually not as sure now if it did. So the story ran yesterday, Tuesday, October 18th. It was an exclusive in the in the sense that Thierry Stern, president of Patek Philippe, granted me an interview last month in September. I think he gave it to a few other markets, but I was the only one in the States. And so I actually stayed up till midnight one night because he was only available speak at 9 a.m. Swiss time. So I stayed up till midnight LA time, interviewed him. And, you know, the big news, of course, is that the long-awaited successor to Reference 5711, the iconic hype watch that we've all heard about, if we know anything about the watch business, selling for three, four, or even five times its retail value on secondary markets, discontinued in 2021. A couple of sort of surprise victory lap editions, they called them. Uh, one came out with a green dial, in April of 21, then we had the sort of by now famous Tiffany blue dial piece that came out in December of 21 and uh, was allocated just 170 pieces in honor of the 170 years that Patek Philippe and Tiffany and company had been in business together. You know, these pieces fetching incredible sums on the secondary market, you know, well, well, well above retail. And instead, now we have the 5811, which, you know, I think if you look at it, you wouldn't be able to tell what on earth is the difference between this and the piece that was retired, the 5711. And it's that it's now in white gold, not in steel. And uh, it sounds like it was a real concerted effort by Patek Philippe to break away from this pack of steel sport watches that have absolutely dominated the watch business. I'm thinking here of the Royal Oak, Modern Marpigay, the Daytona for Rolex, and the craziness we've seen in the marketplace over these steel models, which again, will fetch so much more above our retail value, so much more above the value of gold models. You know, the exact same model in gold will be less than the exact same model in steel. And I sounds like the Stearns were fed up with this hype scenario. And yet it's hard to know really what's that different other than this. I mean, it's still going to be, I think the new white gold piece is um, something along the lines of $69,000 US at retail. I'm sure there'll be a mania for it because it's Patek and it's this Nautilus that has been around since 1976. So coming on 50 years and people are love it, but it, it's kind of one of those things. It's like you said you were retiring the model and now you've just put the exact same model essentially back in the lineup. It just is in white gold, which looks the same, you know? It certainly doesn't really look any different. Um, maybe a, a hair different because the sizing of the case is a hair different. A few subtleties around the way the lugs are. I don't know. It's a fascinating business, but I suppose you know, the Nautilus is close to people's hearts. People adore it. It has this history. It's always been in steel, at least th that version, the time-only version of the Nautilus that the 5711 represented, been around from 2006 to 2021. So it was a long-standing part of the collection. And anyway, I, I have yet to really scour the horological internet to see what the reaction is, but I think people are, you know, people are cynical and then people are, are lovers. So it, there's a, a sort of a split between people who love the brand, want to see it, whatever it does they're pleased with and people who just want to be kind of trolls about it. I'm sure that's not new because that's just the way the internet works. But So it used to be steel. 
Now it's white gold. Does that make a difference as far as how it feels or its durability or? You know, I think gold scratches a little bit, but as does steel. I, I don't know that it makes a big difference. I mean, I think they're both relatively heavy. Maybe gold is a little heavier than steel. It's not like it's, I mean, I think if it had been, if they decided to make the new version of the Nautilus in titanium, that would have been a big difference and certainly a, a statement about innovation and material technology and so on from a very established brand. But instead they went to kind of what you expect. They went to the prestige category and they're trying to, I mean, what Terry Stern told me was that so much of what he's concerned about is the preservation of the brand. And it's you obviously when you make a steel watch and you sell it for whatever, 36,000 or around there is what it retailed for. You know, the same effort is involved in making a gold watch, but you can sell a gold watch for 69,000. And so there's just, a, you know, you elevate the brand. You don't quite as make, make as many. It's not as e easy to buy for your average person, even though, again, your average person won't have access to these pieces. They're all going to be spoken for at retail. So it's kind of all the same in the secondary market. It'll all just be above whatever retail it is. Yeah, I don't think, I think for most people, they'll look you at said, it. You say in the article that he doesn't like all the speculation about the Nautilus. He finds it distasteful. And that I thought this was interesting, and I don't know if this is something that brands admit a lot, that they actually buy from the secondary market themselves just to see if they can figure out where these uh, watches are coming from. And if they trace it to a specific retailer, sometimes they will sanction them. Oh, yeah. I'm sure Rolex does this. I mean, they would never admit it, but I'm sure they do. They, they're invested. They don't, you know, they're not trying to encourage speculative frenzies. And I don't think they help the brand. I mean, they give it some cachet, obviously, and they make headlines, but you don't want to upset your normal customers when this kind of flipping is going on. So yeah, that was interesting. I, I'd never heard of anybody else copying that, but makes sense. Yeah, I think we got to wrap up. It's been a pleasure as always. Thank you, Rob. Yes, very. Uh, there's a lot to talk about, and uh, we're heading for a holiday, so we'll see how that goes. Fingers crossed. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. Thank you.